Hello and welcome to Lauren.Live, the Spirituality, Health, and Lifestyle Podcast. Today I have a special guest on. He's actually my dad. <laughs> Hi, dad, also known as Mark. <laughs> Good afternoon. What a pleasure and honor to be conversing and be interviewed by one of my favorite people on the planet. Oh, geez. Thank you, Dad. <laughs> it's great to have you. And it's great to have you back. Um, if you have seen um, at the previous episode with my dad, then you know he's been a guest on the show. But if you have not, this is his second time. We're doing a part two because we just feel that this topic is very important and relevant. Um, so my dad, Mark Hale, is um, a psychologist and um, he has been in the field for over 40 years uh, specializing in individual and couples therapy. So uh, we've got a ton to talk about. Uh, we wanted to specifically talk about um, relationship intimacy, and then we'll see where the conversation goes from there. But uh, we'd spoken a little bit about that on the past one, so go check that other video out, everybody. But uh, let's dive into it and just kind of let's talk about what you've you know, found helpful for couples over this past 40 years in your, your field, uh, working with people. And, um, if you have advice for people, I think it's, it's one of those, some people might say mystery. How, how do we get along with, with people? And it's not necessarily now just the opposite sex, right? Partners could be of all, all types these days, but whether you're gay, heterosexual, um, how do you make it work? It's hard. It's difficult fighting getting along, respecting your partner, communicating in the hustle bustle of this world. What's the secret, if you will? Some, some of the secrets and some of the science behind it, I think in the last 20, 20 years or so in the profession, in the field of mental health and psychotherapy, there's been more research to try to identify just that. What, contributes to a loving, lasting partnership. Um, at times, I'll probably reference to marriage, but I'm in no way uh, fixated on having to talk about couples' relationship as married couples. So I'll, I'll probably switch back and forth between partnership and marriage. Um, I think in my own practice, probably about half of the work I do is with couples and over the years, I think it has become my specialty, and it's probably a, the type of, of modality of psychotherapy that I enjoy doing the most, and probably one of the most challenging, if you will, trying to help two individuals who are oftentimes exasperated and frustrated and pain when they come in. I think one of the not-so-secrets is kind of commonsensical is not to wait three decades before you get professional help. So we can talk a little bit more about that. I think more and more couples are open-minded to even doing premarital counseling or initially in kind of the forming stage of their relationship that they start experiencing the inevitable frustrations. Um, they'll seek out help from a couples or marital therapist. So... I think that's, you know, very good judgment and that's good self-care and good relationship care. 
Yeah, that's true. I know my husband and I did premarital. It was just like a four session package and it could look different with whoever you go with. Some people do a one time session. Some people do, you know, premarital counseling with their church. Some people do a series of, you know, whatever it looks like. But I do think it's a really good idea because as we had talked about before uh, recording today, what we're going to maybe speak about was expectations, the importance of expectations. I think that's a really nice thing to touch on in premarital because before you join with somebody, it's nice. And those expectations can change, but you'd be surprised, right? There's a lot of people that may not talk about how do you want to manage money? How do you want to run a household? How do you want to raise your children? Are we in line with discipline? Are we in line with how we want to spend our time? Those things seem so like, oh, whatever, we'll figure it out, right? But actually, those are very important things. And I think it's nice to go into a partnership, into a marriage, or like you said, it doesn't have to be marriage, into a union, uh, knowing a little bit about what the other person expects. And uh, I don't know if you'd like to touch on that. Just the, the what do you, what are your thoughts on on expectations and how can that help a couple? Well, I wanted to echo back to you what you just said. The list that you gave, I think, are all um, experiences and issues that couples um, do argue about and experience conflict related to. I think one one of the most important one in my practice over the last few years is just that time. Time is kind of replaced. Sex, money, and parenting is probably one of the primary points of conflict for couples. And it includes when, when do we find time for sex? How do we maintain intimacy between the two of us in terms of friendship um, outside of time with our family or careers? Uh, I think of it as a balancing act. You know, I think that too, that concept, if, could, if it could be shared between partners, that we have a balancing act to attend to. And I think during courtship and maybe I think of uh, marriage or partnership as four stages. And I think during sort of initial meeting and courtship, it's sort of a euphoric stage when um, a lot of expectations can be met and partners will try to accommodate, you know, even high demand and expectations during that euphoric, intoxicating, Oxycontin-like uh, phase of the relationship. And then when people live together, um, which, by the way, is statistically um, not in favor of couples' uh, long-term success, it's probably about, I don't know, 51, 49 or so, but I, I still would encourage couples to live together before marriage if they could. Yeah. Um, it seems it, like a nice preview. I wonder, I mean, that statistic isn't huge on the other side, I guess, of it not working, but it seems like it'd be a nice little preview of how you work together. Really would. Yeah. yeah. Indeed. And now with, um, virtual work environments. Um, I'm encountering a lot more long distance, like maybe even between uh, foreign countries in the U.S. or cross-country relationships. Uh, people really truly not having that opportunity to have a sustained time together and then going going ahead and deciding to get married right. down the road. 
So, but I think the balancing act is a helpful foundation to begin to build a relationship house. And the balancing act includes early discussions around things like career and um, do we, do you and I want to have kids and do we even want to have uh, a St. Bernard or a pet? Um, how do we accommodate uh, differences between our families of origin? That can really be a big stressor in, in partnership or marriage. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Cause you always hear that, right? Finance is one of the finances is one of the main leading reasons for divorce, and I always think like, really, is that true? But have you seen that be a huge uh, issue in in a lot of your couples' relationships? I think you could use finances or differences around parenting or any other subject, time management, uh, feeling the partner's favoring their career over the marriage relationship. Um, I think it's more about their process versus the subject matter. It's how people relate to one another when they are in conflict. I think that's what leads to dissatisfaction and hurt feelings and pain and suffering in relationship. Yeah. And I know we talked about that in our past episode together. It's not even sometimes the topic. It's how the person reacts. It's how you treat one another. It's how you either work on it or don't work on it. That could be a problem. Um, yes. That could be actually the, the what ends up making something work or not work over a year's time, right? Well, you, add, you mentioned something about kind of some of the secrets or a skill set. And it, it's an area, again, that's been demonstrated in research by the iconic psychologist um, John Gottman here in mm-hmm. Seattle, a professor at the University of Washington and his institute, probably... Um, one of the most predominant couples researchers in the world long-term and he and his colleagues have gotten to a point where they have a a 90 plus percent prediction rate of divorce down the road just by monitoring uh, physiologic responses that couples experience during arguing Mm -hmm. and body language. And I think one of the, uh, most important things that they were able to call out of uh, several research studies is that couples who would try to come back and process what just happened in that yelling match, that uncomfortable, uh, hurtful inter- interchange that we just had in the kitchen, that couples who could come back and apologize and make up in a sense, and and work to try to understand what went wrong and not repeat it in future arguments, then that that those those couples, those individuals who were able to pull that off, had a much lower divorce rate mm-hmm. in time than couples who held a grudge. Yeah. Um, I, I've seen that in some of the more um, longer term unhappy couples I've worked with in my practice, longer term marriages. Um, where over time, kind of a careful questioning and, and data assessment, that they would have a, a short argument and stop talking for three days. Yeah. And so two or three short arguments in one month would be nine days of not speaking to one another. Yeah. And some, some the inception of this sometimes happened early on in the marriage mm-hmm. for a variety of different reasons. Like, you know, I don't, I don't want to generate 
another conflict by going back to my partner and saying, I'm sorry, I raised my voice or are, are you still upset with me? Do you want to try to revisit that subject that we had the argument about? And, and most importantly, being able to communicate to the partner that I am apologetic for having said something hurtful or raised my voice. Um, I care how you feel. Mm-hmm. And I think that's as important as anything to be able to convey to one another over time in terms of giving and receiving care and comfort. I care how you feel. I want to contribute to you feeling good about yourself. Now we're moving in the direction maybe of the expectations. I can't, I'm not responsible for my wife, Catherine's feelings, but I want to certainly avoid hurting her feelings or offending her or causing suffering. Right. So this, this, experience this business of conflict, I really appreciate the Buddhist philosophy about conflict in relationship, that it's inevitable. It's a part of intimacy, just like love and affection and empathy and compassion. And I think when people think of it that way, it can, it can contribute to less resistance to attending to conflict. A lot of people are conflict avoidant or they didn't learn how to deal with conflict from their parents growing up. Most of our primary model for, you know, relationship and couples intimacies, our parents relationship and how that went. That's interesting. Yeah. So as to the expectations, um, I think that can get us in all kinds of trouble. Like, um, a loving partner is responsible for how I'm feeling, even though I, I'm struggling with affect regulation. Or um, if, my, if my wife really loved me, she would know what I'm thinking. Yes. I was literally just thinking that in my head because we've said that before. And like, she would know what I'm thinking. You should just know by now what, I'm, what, I, what I would think or what I would feel. It's like, well, I mean, I'm not you, actually. Like, I might know some of your you know, preferences in life and certain things, but like, I'm not always thinking like, what is he going to think? Right. My, I'm talking about my husband or something as an example, but yeah, I feel like we've all done that. Right. Oh, you should just know how I'm feeling. And then because you don't, I'm mad at you now. It's like, well, that's, that's a part of the body of mythology of relationship. And again, back to the early stages of, of courtship and falling in love, which is an interesting term to me. It's like, you're out of control. You're right. You know, you're, falling in love and my loving partner just delivers everything for me. And then, you know, then there's sort of a second stage of the relationship called becoming a couple. And I think then that's this, this forming coming together and beginning to maybe, you know, recognize, Oh yeah, he or she or my partner isn't, isn't perfect. And there are some rough edges and we have some issues to attend to which could lead to uh, disillusionment, which, which is also probably inevitable because then there will be points of conflict or something that, that has come up in a number of couples I've worked with over the years is even around the subject matter of like common interests, hobbies, recreation, how we spend our time. Mm-hmm. Um, A loss of interest maybe in something like skiing. Well, we met we met on the ski hill. We used to take ski vacations. And then one partner 
just decides they really don't like skiing any longer or they don't, they're not as comfortable with cold weather. Mm. And so the other partner uses language like betrayal, you know, and what they sometimes fail to do again, particularly if they have trouble kind of accommodating or accepting one another's differences or this inevitability of people changing is they don't replace it with something new Mm. that they can do, you know, together. Yeah. Or promote, you know, allow the part, the other partner to go off with friends and ski. And then we find, you know, a new interest area that we can do together. Right. Yeah. You probably want to have more than just skiing in in common if you're going to marry somebody, right? (laughs) Or dedicate your life to spending time, you know, with them. Those common interests. Well, they're bonding initially. And I think they're important to some degree, but I I think they can lose, you know, some of their... uh, I don't know, potency or like the, the connective sure. tissue the relationship needs, particularly when children arrive, babies arrive, and we don't really have the time to, to surf or ski or go Not to much. Europe. Yeah, totally. Those type of things. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot. I'm trying to remember that, you know, to unpack what we've just been talking about, the expectations. I'd love to touch more on like the falling in love thing. I think that's something that, we all love the idea, right? And for any of us who have fallen in love, you may have, you may still be involved in love, but it might look different, or you may have fallen out of love with the person. Uh, but it's so glamorous, right? Like falling in love. Everybody wants to fall in love. That's what every love song that we listen to in movie is about. And even as a child, right? I grew up watching Disney movies, and it was always with the fairy tale and the happy ever after. But then they never show the sequel, right? Once Cinderella and her prince are married, then what, right? That's never, we're never really like taught that. And if you're lucky enough to be in a home where you have a good modeling of a healthy couple, or you I don't know, wherever you get that, you learn things in like a psychology class in school. But generally speaking, if you're not getting it from the home, you know, where are you learning about what comes after the fairy tale? So I think that's interesting that even from a young age in the society, we're taught like it's just this fairy tale, but it's clearly if you look at the divorce rates, it's not just a fairy tale. Like it's very hard to make a marriage work for a long time. And even if you're making it work, are you truly happy? So like, what is your advice to people that are younger that might be watching this or that aren't married or even people that are married? Of course, this is for everybody. But I think for people that haven't taken that leap yet that are in love or like, how do we prepare for commitment? Um, There's more than just the falling in love stage. Well, I think it starts with oneself, knowing oneself, what's important to us in a relationship. Um, our own capacity to be loving, our own capacity for intimacy. And I I think one of the most important points of compatibility in a long-term relationship is some sort of meeting in the middle or integration around our capacity for intimacy. It doesn't have to be 50-50 by any means that can turn into a competition, but that I, I am comfortable giving and receiving care and comfort. And I think that's that's kind of some of the, the working definition for me, my own definition of what is love. I think maybe we could talk a bit about that. Sure. Falling in love, what is what is love? And do does my uh, partner or let's say fiance perspective, long-term partner, do we have a common definition 
of what what love is, what intimacy is, what um, trust is, and then how if we do, how can we operationalize those in a behavioral sense versus just I love you and then I just go off and do what I darn well please all the time. I'm very self-absorbed. I really do love my partner, but I'm not very responsive to my partner. I'm not very attentive to my partner. I have expectations that since I work so hard or my, I'm, I'm the primary breadwinner, for example, that becomes a power dynamic in a lot of couples relationships. They become very competitive around careers. And so I think that this, this um, sort of a, a synchronization and a symmetry around some of these concepts, you know, they're, they're, they're words, uh, similar. Another one I think is compassion and empathy. So how, how do we come up and sync as a couple? So we have some sort of a parallel. I think of it as, I think of love also as an energy field and, and this back and forth energy positive, loving energy exchange between two people, which then I, I think can be a great contributor to being able to enact some of these important things like building intimacy over time, which is a bias of mine. I, I think that the longer I've been married to Catherine, who happens to be your mom, yeah. the longer I'm married to her, I feel like I, my love for her after 40 some years is, is deeper. It's growing. My, um, my caring for her is growing. And I think that that's the possibility of, of, or a harvest or yield of a long-term marriage that we, we settle in for the long haul and it's not to say again that it's a panacea or that it's perfect. You know, right. it, there are periods of dissolution and there are periods of, of distance or maybe more friction or tension during stressful periods of time in our career or, uh, again, parenting issues or challenging kids, special needs kids, uh, loss of job. And of course, more recently, a pandemic where couples have been cooped up at home uh, with their kids doing um, homeschooling for right. the last two years. Yeah, there's a lot to navigate. Well, what I'm like when I'm listening to you, just registering, and that's what this podcast is, tends to almost always be about: is consciousness, ego, separating ego, love, positivity, right? Striving to be better to ourselves and to others. And I think, I don't know, I'm having my own realizations through this conversation. I mean, I already knew it, but listening to you, it's like, no wonder relationships are so hard. It doesn't just have to be romantic, by the way. First and foremost, we always just, this is how we're trained to think here. And it's part of just how I think we're designed spiritually, learning to separate the ego from your spirit or soul. We're inherently kind of selfish. And I don't mean that negatively, but like it, it probably comes down to even just like things about like survival and stuff, right? Or preferences where you've been single and not married for a large part of your time. So you're used to doing what you want to do when you want to do it. And so joining with someone that's tricky, of course it is. And so again, like this illusion that you fall in love and like you'll figure it out and it's easy. 
no wonder it's kind of takes some work and some conscious thought because yes, like I, I'm feeling this way. How did you not know that I'm feeling this way? Or I want to do this, or this is how I manage my money. There's a lot of I, I, I. And so that's why I think that's really nice that you touched on that of being able to not only like be conscious of your thoughts, but also the other person, they have their own thoughts, their own feelings and being able to be considerate and empathetic. And I don't, I didn't mean to make you feel that way. I'm sorry. I was thinking kind of about myself being able to come back and resolve things. I think that's like super important. I hope that makes sense, but it, naturally we kind of first sometimes do think about our preferences in ourself and that obviously can cause tension and conflict so being able to look inward at yourself ooh, that may have been selfish and then being able to think about somebody else's needs is a very important skill in a relationship i think self-awareness is the yeah. most important i guess i could have summed it up by just saying self-awareness <laughs> Well, that, that, that's fine. Self-awareness, again, but, okay, so how, how does an individual take great self-awareness? And I think it's, it would be even more dynamic if other people, like their partner, other, other important people in our life, viewed us. I think I'm self-aware, but if other people experience me as self-focused and stubborn and rigid and, un, you know, unchanging, um that could be problematic, but I think using the self-awareness, keeping our ego in check, uh, willing to take responsibility and be accountable yeah. when we do behave badly or say something hurtful, mm-hmm. you know, to a partner, then I think that that would be a great contribution. I think kind of simplistic concepts like shit, sharing back to kindergarten or think learning learning to share not interrupting truly you know trying to hear and understand to be attuned mm-hmm. to the partner i mean psychoneurologically we can't listen and be formulating our next response simultaneously i can't really particularly if emotions are charging so you have to try to keep those emotions in check, which could dramatically reduce the amount of emotional reactivity to one another, which is really one of the most damaging kind of dynamics, I think, that happen between partners is emotional reactivity, which which then kind of breeds or fosters an emotional reaction and response. And if, if that goes unchecked and builds over time, then I think it creates defensive walls and then the patterns of interacting are more rivalrous or competitive and self-preserving than I care how you feel. Right. Why is everything so emotional? Is it like, uh, again, is that just because sometimes we're just selfish and unaware or, you know what I mean? It feels like a lot of the things, at least personally, I know from talking to friends too and you mom or just your couples and and myself it's not always about the thing it's it's about the reaction and then that's what pisses me off right <laughs> why is it the re- why do we react why do we overreact and react so quickly without thinking it's just like a natural thing like oh like just listen to me or you should have known or i'm annoyed right now it's like 
why do we do that? What is it in our brain and in emotions? What's going on? Well, it's often not coming from our prefrontal cortex, this higher level evolved portion of the brain that um, separated us maybe from Cro-Magnon man. Mm. <laughs> it comes from back here, the limbic system and a fight or flight type of response. I think simply stated at the core of it is fear. Mm. I, I, I fear you, you don't love me, which is you know possibly quite irrational <laughs> in, in a moment of intense emotional reactivity, or I fear I fear I'm being overwhelmed. Yeah. So it's sort of abandonment or annihilation, and so the fear response triggers fight or flight. Even if it's just something small, I mean, some people might be like, "What?" You, but even if it's just like something little, it's like a little mini fight or flight. Like I feel misunderstood, so then you react. Well, it could be as as microscopic as, did you see my husband's eye, right eye went up? <laughs> or she's shutting, she's turning away, and the, the wife crossed her legs and turned. Sure. Yeah, you make she, assumptions or you overreact. Away. Right. She's tuning me out. Mm-hmm. They're both right. Nope. Sure. Yeah. Back to Gottman for, for a moment. He, he came up with uh, these four horsemen. They were, it's criticism stonewalling, contempt, and defensiveness. And I, I've added two more, rivalry and reactivity mm-hmm. to that list. And I think when couples are operating in their relational field in those ways, I mean, they're, they're really um, creating their own pain and suffering. That those are, yeah. Instead of it being compassion, understanding, tolerance, acceptance, love, empathy, right. You see the difference between the two. And again, if I think of it as almost like instead of building um, an environment of, of intimacy, trust, kindness, caring, it, it's more along the lines of like a brick wall building up over time. And then again, back to the shutting down, which could be as bad as saying and doing hurt, you know, loud, hurtful things, yelling, et cetera, is the stonewalling. Yeah. It builds to a point where they stop talking for weeks at a time. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I know. The reaction thing is definitely something to be conscious of because we all do it. And uh, I don't know. I feel like lately I'm still learning, trust me. But I have noticed in certain moments, like I want to react this way. My ego wants to. I want to be annoyed right now. I want to be mad. I want to just give the silent treatment. I want what you know, just like in a moment of something. But then I just recognize that it's my ego, and then I take a moment. I step back. I take a deep breath. I don't respond. Just like slowing down. You made a good point. We spoke about this sometime recently about we all have options. Yeah. If we remember that is you know before we go to the the fight or flight, uh, and it, it, it's a choice even though we're overwhelmed with hormones and neurotransmitters that, that are related to fight or flight. But that I have a choice even to go there, or I can take a few deep breaths. I think this is this is important too. It's kind of a point of awareness or consideration that we we try our best even in the most frustrating times not to perceive our partner during the argument as an adversary or, or, you know, at worst, the enemy. 
a provocateur. No, it, it's it's my beloved partner. Mm. And we're having a moment of frustration. And that's allowed and okay. And knowing, I think, here's a phenomenal communication skill because it seems as if every couple requests communication skills. One of the most valuable ones of all, I think, is knowing when to stop talking. Mm. Okay. When would you, when would you recommend that then at what point, if it's not, you know, I would assume one of the times would be if it's just not going anywhere, you've been talking for a while and it seems like you're not making any progress. Yes. Okay. Well, that, that's a very important question. And you know, that one, um, I think dovetails back into the self-awareness, trying to stay calm recognizing when we're starting to get angry or shut down or both. Um, I think kind of a rule, I talk a lot with couples about rules of engagement. One partner raises their voice and the partner says, I'm willing to listen to you if you'll lower your voice Mm -hmm. and and the person raises their voice. So who's creating who's suffering in a circumstance like that? But I think in in that situation, the partner says, can we please stop? This isn't going well for me or I'm not hearing you. Then that person would take responsibility to re-engage and say, shall we try to revisit? Because it can be used as a weapon, you know, in this chess match, the competition or, you know, in, in sort of a power dynamic way. Okay, the marital therapist told us to know when to stop talking, so I'm just going to you know, put the brakes on and be the one that, that withdraws each time. And I, I think that could, it could, could be advantageous and helpful. It could also be used, you know, in a, you never in, want to talk about it. <laughs> way. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Exactly. So if you didn't abuse it though, just when you were noticing it was getting too escalated, you weren't making any progress. One or both people was getting too emotional. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you suggest? I know there's no magic thing, but is there something good about like, Hey, I mean, I guess each couple could divine what would work for them, but Hey, let's table this and talk in an hour or Hey, let's just, let's circle back on this tomorrow. I mean, I guess each person could define depending on the topic. Uh, what do you recommend though? Just kind of like coming up with a agreed upon time to circle back on the topic or. You know, I, I think that gets complicated by the fact that maybe one partner speak about we should talk about differences sometimes, the inevitable differences between two people. So you have one partner who who can kind of process and resolve their hurt feelings in an hour. Yeah. The other partner needs 24 hours. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, how are they going to kind of moderate that and resolve, negotiate out that kind of difference? And so that's where I think rules of engagement, it, I try to get, get couples to compose or co-construct some rules of engagement like no yelling or uh, we will come back and and revisit the discussion within a agreed upon specified time period the written rules of engagement can be really helpful Mm -hmm. that's true yeah not going to bring up the past Mm. Uh, we're we're not going to eat you always yeah you have to be careful about how you say things too right the language blaming yeah, that's true. Blaming scapegoating. Okay. Yeah. So I know, because I know this topic can go all over the place. So maybe just to help some people with just, like you said, some like tips for improving relationships specifically as we're talking about today, intimate. So we have, um, I might be going out of order, but obviously the last one we just spoke about, maybe creating some rules of engagement is helpful. 
Um, being self-aware is huge in life in general, but specifically, right, as we're talking about in a relationship. Um, what, uh, what was the other one that we talked about? I think caring how your partner feels yes. is really at the forefront. Care and that, respect. Of, yes. And if you don't care about the other person, you might want to ask yourself maybe why you're in a relationship with them. Cause if you don't care about the person, that's a problem. Well, I have, do you mind if I read a, a list of some important sure. characteristics that I, I have compiled over the years yeah. I've been working with couples yeah. that I think, I think contribute to, you know, a, a loving lasting relationship. Yeah, definitely. Uh, partners share a common working definition of the concept of trust. Each partner is willing and able to give and receive care and comfort, which we discussed earlier. Partners work to perceive one another as a respected peer and equal. My vision of myself is relatively comparable to how my partner experiences me. So some of these I've referenced to already. Uh, a middle way relating to intimacy needs, sexuality, non-sexual touching, holding, eye contact, I think eye contact is, is a really important one in terms of even the rules of engagement that people don't, don't turn away from their partner, but they, you know, not glare a hole through them, but try to engage sure. you know, yeah. person to person. Talking, listening, common interests, bouncing career. This is back to the middle way. Uh, tending to family, the nuclear family and extended family. How does each partner feel about themselves in the context of their relationship? Good enough, valued, appreciated versus being demeaned, judged, or criticized. That's one that comes up so often in, in my work with couples that one or both partners don't feel like they're appreciated or their positive, loving gestures don't get acknowledged and recognized. Yeah. I think oftentimes that's, um, again, more likely to emerge after some sustained yeah. uh, conflict, un unresolved conflict and uh, friction and tension between the partners where they drift apart. Mm -hmm. um, I just reference to this willingness to construct rules of engagement. No yelling, no violence, no threats. Refrain from bringing up the past. Cease the argument when heading off an icy, slippery cliff. That's a recognizing, you asked about knowing when to stop talking. That would be a great one to weave into the rules of engagement, mm. that if one partner says, could we, could we please stop talking? Mm. That that becomes the, the priority versus having to get the last word in. Right. And I think, too, it's like a, a reference to kind of operationalizing respect. How can we put respect into practice? in the relationship. Each partner is mindful of both their family of origin influence, as well as their partner's childhood history and family of origin consideration. That's, I guess, a whole talk. Yeah, that could be its own episode. That's it, it, huge. No. And then uh, spirituality, common ground or tolerance and acceptance of our differences around spirituality. And I, know so I, th I think of all those, excuse me, no, as, as kind of contributors and points 
of um, compatibility between people, between partners. Ah, oh, that's an excellent list. We'll have to maybe summarize that in the description, but people pay attention to that list. That's that's gold. That's forty years of observations, <laughs> thousands of couples. <laughs> yeah, that's a really great list. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I don't know. It, it seems so simple, but yet when you're in it, sometimes it does feel complex. Not always, but sometimes. It's just, it's, it's, it is, it takes practice to be self-aware, to think of somebody else sometimes before yourself. Um, or for some people, they are always tending to the other person and not caring about themselves. That can also be a problem. Um, but I do think the family of origin thing is huge. I think we touched a little bit of that on that in the past episode. That is something very interesting, though. I think you can either be conscious to how you were raised, what your parents were like, um, or if you had a single parent, you know, household, whatever it looked like, uh, you could either be conscious to bring along some of the things that you observed that were helpful, or if it was not a good situation, you could be conscious to not bring that on into the next generation when you're raising your family. Uh, that's a really interesting thing. I think it's good to know what you're getting into with your partner can help with the future of your relationship, wouldn't you say? Well, that one reminds me, yes, I would. And that reminds me of, um, you know, kind of going in, going back in time to uh, the mate selection process of kind of knowing, as I said, what would be important to us and kind of, kind of eyes wide open going into the relationship. I've had both friends and a number of clients over the years say that they were so filled with ambivalence about going ahead and getting married and filled with ambivalence on the day of their wedding. And they went ahead and got married and they ended up divorced. And so I think knowing, truly knowing, um, and, and back to the expectations, that there's there's no one on the planet people who've been married four and five times you know sometimes have this epiphany and look in the mirror and say you know could it be about me yeah. maybe something about me um in the mix but i think that mate selection process uh obvious but it, it's it's really a, a kind of a precarious uh, journey and a lot of folks Go in, go into the relationship with a, a, a radical imbalance, for instance, around power. One partner's really dominant and the other partner's not really happy with it, but they have a strong need to be taken care of. Or, or as you referenced a moment ago, maybe I really derive a great sense of pleasure being a caretaker. Mm -hmm. uh, but then after a few years of that, you know, have an expectation perhaps when does it get to be my turn sure. and then the other partner has that feeling of betrayal i thought we had a perfect power balance yeah yeah and another full episode could be too just like you, you said mate selection process which i don't think a lot of people refer to it younger people probably don't call it that but if you think about it i mean if you go back in in time like you said like caveman times our lives have changed a lot. Marriage and partnership, procreating with someone, it's changed a lot. Some of it's become a society thing, right? I mean, 
it's different. And now living in a world with so much technology interference and fast paced, it's, it's just, it's different than like maybe when, you know, your parents were getting married. And so people get married for different reasons. I think some people have like a religious bond. Uh, some do it because they're just attracted to the person. Some do it because they're just trying to fulfill like I want someone to just take care of me, filling a void. There's so many reasons why people get married. But generally speaking, if we go back to the fairy tale, I think people are looking for someone to share their life with, generally speaking, someone to maybe start a family with and support and health through like sickness and health, right? I mean, yes. so I don't know. It's, it's very interesting to think about all that stuff. But I think it does go back to just like how we are designed biologically speaking procreating it's what we've you know inherently now that's a little different i think birth rates are a lot lower than back in the day when people were having more children but uh there is something that's just biologically wired in us to want to be with someone now some people could also say we aren't wired to be monogamous but that's been something that's again that's a whole nother episode uh our world today we're more monogamous than we were in the past but do you think it is possible to to actually be happy in a relationship and be monogamous? Because I know that's another thing. Infidelity is huge. It's hard to do a quick touch on that because, again, that could be its own episode too. But is it possible, I guess, in summary, as we're kind of getting ready to close, you've seen all these people come. I've had friends that are really struggling and getting divorced, you know, and we're in our 30s. Divorce rates are really high and not just divorce rates, just ends, ending of relationships. It's hard sometimes. So what, what is that all about? I mean, I, I don't know. Well, we, we've, I think, addressed some of the reasons. Um, the expectations, I, you know, I think some couples can, can negotiate an open marriage. It's a very small fraction, but that would be their definition of trust that that they're having sexual relations with other people and they're still a couple. Um, Do you think we're wired for for that? I think that that would bring up a lot of insecurity and jealousy and uh, paranoia and anger and all kinds of hurt feelings, but some couples might be able to pull that off. So yeah, I think it, it's some of the secrets again. It's it's just this, I'm a married person or in a partnership now. How do I want to be? What am I willing to contribute? Um, the, it's three-dimensional in a way. It's two individuals, and then there's this relationship unit. Now, how are we going to accommodate the, this three-dimensional field? My needs, your needs, our needs. Oh, and the arrival of children and yeah. career demands and, and a variety of other things. Something I thought about a moment ago, uh, this has come up very frequently with a lot of the individuals I've worked with, couples over the years. Do you, I'll ask you a question. For women, do you know what the prevailing, recurring, number one thing that women say they want from their husband or their partner? Um like attention, affection, or like to be desired? Yes, it's it's all the above. Yeah. They feel like they're prioritized, yeah. they're number one in their- Appreciated, heart. yeah. They're number one in right. their partner's life. So see, prioritized over career, over friends, over golf, over skiing, over money. Sure. 
all those things over their the partner's family of origin. Mm-hmm. So, and you know what it is for men? Respect. Most men to be accepted for who they are. So their partner's not constantly trying to change them. Sure. Redirect them and manage them and schedule them. Ironic, (laughs) because I can even vouch, (laughs) divulging. I can vouch for that one. Well, but it's interesting. Again, this is not stereotypes, but generally speaking, women and men do just often have certain characteristics. Again, please don't take this like it's just this way. But again, from what I've noticed over my 37 years of life from friends and, and society is typically I feel women do have more of the like, nag and like fix things and will you do this and do that and I think that's why men often feel like they're not being accepted for who they are and they look at it as we're trying to change them and all this stuff but I don't know if that's partially like for me at least I'm kind of a type a person but that's how I feel like in control my household's in control I'm taking care of this I need your help to do this it's how I function right it's a good trait but it can get out of hand sometimes and I need to also just say like okay like leave him be like he's doing great that's where the self-awareness comes in So I do think that that's biologically like women can kind of nitpick and do these things and then the men, it starts to cycle. Um, But then I think, yeah, men sometimes too can, they want to provide and they want to do these things and then they don't always like nurture as much maybe as we want. So those are, I think what you've said is valid. Yeah. Well, and an important part, maybe this is is something back to the skill set that might be helpful for folks is, is, I think that if we could err on the side of like a five to one ratio, compliments, uh, validating statements, appreciation, these, I love you. I think the thought, I, I see your mom and, and I think she looks beautiful, but I don't put voice to the perception, to the, that recognition. And I think with couples who struggle and start getting into to troubled waters, they're more inclined to uh, voice the criticism, the kind of the judgment, um, complaints, yeah. sarcasm mm-hmm. versus versus kind of the loving kindness. Yeah. And I think probably over these last several years, the most influential contribution to my practice style has been Buddhism, my study of Buddhism and employing some of the primary principles of Buddhism, the, the eight noble truth type things where I, again, h- how to uh, put into practice self-awareness. I'm mindful of my intention. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm mindful of what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, what I'm saying, and, and I'm trying to weave that into the relationship. And when you get two people doing that simultaneously, I think it generates a safe environment, a loving environment, a trusting environment that then can accommodate our ever-present differences and uh, our, our, our changing interests and uh, the, you know, the weathering of stressors outside of us like this pandemic that we've all been living in for this last year and a half or so and the political division and weather crisis and all Life. sorts of other things outside of the, right. the marital relationship itself. Sure. And you'd hope you could go to that 
marriage that's the core of the safety place. So when all the crazy in the world, right, you have that place, but unfortunately it's just so easy to lash out and yeah, I'm not to be negative, but yeah, it can be tough. And so I think, you know, sometimes like I think that like we're kind of bickering or something about like my daughter, my husband and I, and I'm like, Hey, wait, I have to remind myself, like, we're on the same team. Oh, yeah, okay, cool. Like, being caught, and they're like, oh, yeah, it kind of reminds us, like, oh, yeah, we're supposed to be on the same team. But it's so easy when you're comfortable with someone over the years to just start to kind of, like you said, it can get dangerous because it can start building a wall if you're not conscious to it, uh, sarcastic comments and stuff. But that's why I always hear people say, like, date your partner. Do you think that's a kind of a nice thing to, to say, like, remind yourself to you know, 20, 30 years, still take the date night, still compliment your partner, do little nice gestures or gifts or whatever your love language is, right? I think it's really important to still date your partner, uh, keep the magic alive. I I think of it as honor and respecting the partner. And and that's, that's how, in my mind, we prioritize uh, one another, you know, honor and respect. And then the, those behaviors and that relational atmosphere contribute to um, this energy field of love. Loving say, I love my partner because I gave them an expensive gift or I took them out to dinner on our anniversary. Um, But then other times I don't treat them very respectfully or I don't, I don't, treat them well yeah so. yeah that's a good you should have those elements first and then yes go out and do some fun things together make you know time for each other make each other a priority but yes you're right you have to have that respect um yeah this is a good conversation it could we could keep going but i think that's a lot i think there's some good tips for people good reminders and you know it's not negative it's just the reality it can be difficult to be in relationships hence why we're here talking about it but um i think just resetting the expectation it's not always a fairy tale if you go into it knowing that even i think that just resets your expectations you're going to hit bumps and having a commitment with somebody that's pretty special and growing like you said with someone over the years and your love grows wow look at all that we've accomplished life can be really hard but look at us go like you can spin it too it doesn't always just have to be this negative thing right so um there are a lot of couples that are are making making it happen 20 30 40 50 years so it's totally possible um i think it comes down to like you said self-awareness consciousness and uh all the little tips that you gave were really great i appreciate those um any any closing words that you'd like to to throw out before we come come to an end? I I would just say that um, you know I think that that you and Michael you know have a really positive start on on having a a loving lasting marriage and the way that you have a co-parent your daughter Valentina is is also very impressive and at at the tender age of 11 months we're already seeing this personality how she is flourishing and and how she's responding so positively to the love that you and michael give her and the love that you show one another 
and, and she's picking up on that so intently. You know, she's absorbing that so well. And I think that the same kind of that same loving, nurturing approach to a, a baby or a young child, you know, obviously it's a different intimacy between partners, but I think the key components of it are quite quite similar. That's actually true. That's a good advice for us because we're very think, nurturing, yeah. more tolerant and accepting patience yes. with one another, which is about yeah. <laughs> some time. It's like then the it's like a a fraction, the room numerator and denominator. It's like how do you, how can you be patient with someone who's just irritating the hell out of you in the moment? It's difficult. Right. Yeah. Well, the, the thing to remember is, oh yeah, she or he gets really frustrated with me at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mirror experience. Yeah. Oh. What's it like to be married to me? Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, thanks for the compliment. I owe a lot to you and mom for, for showing me how to be emotionally available and for love and to give love but um that is a good as we close it's a good um tip because i'm learning about this i've mentioned before big little feelings is a um awesome i follow them on instagram they have a website too but validating a young baby or toddler's uh tantrums and and how to react to that as a parent right validating the feeling but holding a boundary you could do that in your relationship. So the fact that you just said that's a good reminder of, I think we have expectations if we're adults that you can't have a tantrum. Maybe it's not a full out tantrum, right? But an, a blow out or a raised voice or something. We're all human. We're all emotional. So yeah. validating it, but then holding a boundary. So you could even do that in a way. It sounds kind of silly, but I don't know that something clicked with me when you said that about just like the way that we're doing this with Valentina, we could also do this in our relationship. And I think the difference is just because we're adults, we have these expectations that we're supposed to know something, but Hey, this is an ever changing experience and we're all continuing to always learn. Right. So forgive your partner if they have moments of, you know, not being their best. And we hope that they'll do that for ourselves too. Right. So, um, I think that's, if that makes sense, but, uh, It fosters a more tolerant, accepting, uh, patient uh, atmosphere again between two people. I think we just need to be more patient is what I was trying to say with with each other and uh, validating one another's feelings. And then you work through that together. Well, something that's helpful there, I know we need to wind down, is also, again, knowing how I'm feeling and being able then to communicate to a partner. I'm stressed from work. Yeah. I may not be the most conversational person tonight. I need some quiet time. Mm-hmm. I'm not upset with you or um, I, I'm kind of irritable today, which mm-hmm. doesn't give me license to behave badly, but I'm irritable. I'm short tempered because I got about three hours of sleep last night or I don't feel well physically or something to that effect. And so it's kind of, you know, notifying one another mm-hmm. back and forth. So it's, it's a subset a special instead of area, biting uh, someone's head off. <laughs> yeah. You know, apologies. Apologies are important, um, but not repeating the same hurtful behavior and then apologizing. Sure. That can be a bad cycle, too. Yeah. Positive. Definitely. Wow. Well, I love it. I think really good tips. Um, I thank you for being here. Thank you for all your service over the years, helping people and continuing to do so now. And 
uh, yeah, I would encourage people if, if you feel that you have been struggling and haven't been able to kind of make some changes or, or growth or move forward uh, to check out therapy. Uh, I think it's a very healthy tool. It's nice to have a kind of a third party there to, to help. Um, so wishing everybody, uh, you know, the best, no matter what you're going through. And, uh, there's a lot of support out there for you. So thanks dad. Thanks Mark Hale <laughs> for being here today. You're welcome. Yeah. My pleasure. It's good to see you. Yes. It's good to see you over the interwebs. Okay, well, thanks everyone for listening to Lauren.Live. You can find me on Instagram at RealLaurenLive and my website, Lauren.Live. Uh, we'll catch you next week on a new episode.